Hello and welcome to another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd and today I'm joined by my co-producer Percy. Hello. And we have two special guests that are going to chat with us about Murder, She Wrote, Adaptation, and why Jessica Fletcher is a gay icon. Um, Joel B. New, the singer-songwriter behind Cabot Cove, a Murder, She Wrote theater pop EP. Hey, thanks for having me. And the TTRPG writer of Brindlewood Bay, Jason Cordova. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so to kick things off, Joel, can you talk a little bit about your work as a composer and your work as a theater artist? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started out as... I think most theater artists do uh, as a performer. Um, I went to Oklahoma City University as a musical theater performance major, you know, home of Kelly O'Hara, Kristen Chenoweth. And um, and while I was there, I discovered that I liked to write musicals almost more than I liked starring in them. So I took a, you know, a slight pivot and moved to New York and got my, you know, master's in uh, musical theater writing from NYU. And um, I've been writing musicals for about 20 years, which is insane. Um, you know, I I have a Jonathan Larson grant. I have a Mac Award. Um, I would say my musical mission is to take the familiar, make it a little unfamiliar and write shows that are essentially stupid, silly, sweet, fun, sometimes violent, a little dark and queer as fuck. But Excellent. Awesome. Um and then, Jason, can you talk a little bit about your work as a TTRPG writer and your engagement with tabletop games? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a a full-time creator of tabletop role-playing games and adjacent uh, things like podcasts. I actually got started, well, so I started playing tabletop role-playing games when I was like in the fourth grade, like years and years ago, but my sort of present day connection to them started in 2013 when I formed a group called The Gauntlet, which is an independent tabletop role-playing game uh, fan community, I guess. We just, we play games. Um, and that sort of led to podcasting around 2016 or so, 2015. And then um, we published, we started doing publishing in late 2017 and then really kind of ramped that up in like 2019. And so I've been doing uh, publishing mostly as my job since 2019. And I have written um, two games myself. Uh, Brenda Wood Bay is one of them. And then there's a sister game called The Between um, that is also uh, out uh, right now. And I've co-written a couple of games and I've, and I've published quite a lot of others, uh, most famously the Trophy Tabletop Role-Playing Game, which is by Jesse Ross. I'm the publisher of that. So. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Um, I know you're both into Murder, She Wrote. That's why we're here today. Uh, so let's talk about it. Um, I would love to know what drew you both to the show. Are there ways that you feel it was influential uh, in your lives? Uh, I'll start. Um, so, yeah, my first exposure to Murder, She Wrote was actually just watching it with my grandmother um, when Murder, She Wrote was actually uh like brand new being aired, I was pretty young. And so I mostly caught it in syndication. Um, my grandmother would always have it on. She'd have that and Matlock and certain other like kind of like older uh, uh, TV shows, American TV shows. And so that's when I first started watching um, Murder, She Wrote. But back then I was fairly young. And so I can't say I really like paid too close attention to it. I actually kind of came to Murder, She Wrote as a big fan of it, like later in life. Um, and 
Yeah, I I've always loved it uh, ever since I've known it, but I love it even more now. Like it is, I don't know. Murder She Wrote probably more than many other classic TV shows really like hits a lot of buttons for me. Like it it taps into a certain type of nostalgia, nostalgia for like. I don't know, like a, a kind of like mid mid to late '80s Americana that is not real, you know, but the, like the, like kind of feel for a little bit, you know, and um, but it also taps into these memories I have with family and um, and like like Jessica Fletcher's like a classic like strong older woman character, so that appeals a lot. And so yeah, there's um, it, it's it's always fun to watch. You can go back and watch. You can just pick out any episode, and it's always going to be like a good time, <laughs> you know. Um, it has just that perfect balance of like kitsch and um uh like and just like good story and uh it's fun to like just you know to sort of like revel in that kind of those memories and that nostalgia for me yeah i'll do my best not to repeat much of what jason said but i i feel a lot of that very deeply i too watched it with uh one of my grandmothers growing up um i'm old enough to have watched it in pretty much its original airings um i feel like you know, but i was a kid and it felt it felt like grown up tv to me you know it was you know, like a lot of cartoons. And then it was like, all right, now like grown up TV, murder, she wrote star Trek next generation. Um, like, I don't know why those, those were the ones, but like, I've always loved mysteries. You know, I loved clue. Clue is my favorite board game. Clue is one of my favorite movies. Um, I read a lot of mystery books growing up. Um, I think, I think the theme song is, is very, um, I feel something when I hear that theme song. And of course, like Angela Lansbury, just like as, as an actress and JB Fletcher as a character definitely drew me to the show. Um, it's influenced me um, because it, it, it has that healthy balance of like dark and light. I think like the, the kitsch that Jason was talking about. I mean, you know, we are dealing with murder, but I feel like nine times out of 10, the episode ended with like a joke and Angela like laughing and freeze frame. Um, you know, is one of those, and, and, and like, as to Jason's point, like it started a, a fabulous woman. And I think, you know, fabulous women are, um, just so important, um, at least to me as a gay man. And, um, and just like the idea of cozy mysteries, which is a whole subgenre of mysteries. And it, to me is like the ultimate mashup. And, um, I just, I feel like that is definitely, uh, transferred into my, my creative life. I feel like we're the same person because clue is my favorite movie. Also, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like my absolute favorite movie of all time. I've seen it at least 85 times and, oh, yeah. and I can like cite it word for word. Like, yeah, I, I love it. But yeah, I, I, I second all of that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's good times. So, um, we we towed into this a little bit, but I feel like as a queer man of a certain age, there's this outsized love for Murder, She Wrote in the community. Um, and I don't fully understand it. I don't like grok it, but I un- I know that it is true. So I was wondering, um, like, do you think that's something specific about the show or about Angela Lansbury or like some offshoot of the love that queer men have for the Golden Girls? Uh, like, what does that mean for you in terms of like strong older women and queerness? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I am also a gay man. And I I think for, you know, I'll just speak to my own experience, but I'm sure it's an experience that is probably uh, salient for a lot of other uh, people like me. You know, for me, I think, I, I you know, as a gay man, I am very, very interested in this idea of, like, I think there's always like a desire to sort of like push back against the sort of patriarchal 
ethical norms of society. You know, you always want to like, you're always like, whether intentional or not, you're always kind of pushing back against it. And I think that that's where a love of strong women characters comes from, because strong women characters, at least in the 80s and 90s, that was like the only way you could really see an example of someone like standing up against like the norms of society, right? And what society expected you to do, right? We didn't have lots of queer representation in the 80s and 90s. And so I think, you know, your Golden Girls, you know, and and characters like Jessica Fletcher, like they were very much like not the norm and yet they were popular. They were a thing that people loved, right? I'm also a big fan of horror movies. And I think there's actually a really interesting connection there because I think that for me, at least as a gay man, I always felt like these things were like secretly made for me, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like, like they're, uh-huh. they're, they have a patina for like general consumption. Right. But but there's something about them that is like there's a wink and a nod there of like, hey, little gay boy, this is for you. <laughs> like, this is actually for you. Right. And I'm and I'm coding it in ways so that, you know, it's for you. Right. And so I think that's a big part of it. Uh, you mentioned the Golden Girls. I think there's an aspect of found family there. The Golden Girls represents like one of the most like uh, it, it's, you know, it's obviously very idealized, but but it it represents like a sort of idea of you can kind of make family, you know, and I, and I think for a lot of gay men that has a lot of resonance, you know, because you, you often find yourself in that situation, you know? So yeah, I I think, but I think the big picture for me, I think, I think it's just a lot about like pushing back against what society expects you to be doing, right. How things are supposed to be structured. Yeah. I'll double down on that. I think just Jessica Fletcher's independence as a woman who didn't need to have a husband who didn't need to have a romantic inch love interest in the show, which, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of research about the show in, in, you know, my time. And I know that was very important to her that she, you know, that that wasn't a through line, that that was not an expectation. Jason spoke to this a little bit um, about expectation and do like her character was an English teacher who then like dabbled in mystery novels and just kind of like fell into this and then kind of fell into being a detective. And in almost every episode, there was at least one straight man that said, you can't do this, leave this to the men or, you know, and they were always proven wrong. And they, you know, most of them apologized at the end. I think there's something about, you know, a character where no one thinks she should be doing what she's doing in the first place. And especially, you know, straight men kind of telling her no, that, you know, I mean, this is all in hindsight. Obviously, I didn't think about this when I was a child. Um, and, but like now it's like the nostalgia of it, the the fashion of it. I follow Instagram accounts about the fashion <laughs> of the show alone. Um, mm. I think the, the guest stars, I think Jason talked about coding, but I think, you know, now that we, you know, we're watching the guest stars and I'm like, yeah, he was gay. You, you know, like you and, and like watching her relationship with like Dr. Seth Hazlitt and just like that lovely platonic relationship between a man and a woman, um, you know, I think it's also just like lovely to see. I think it also doesn't hurt that uh, actresses like uh, B. Arthur and Angela Lansbury are like legends of Broadway also. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Big, I think that's a big part of it as well, but you know, a, a yeah. more like a, a more surface part of it. Right. So, yeah, they're, they're theater women and theater women are inherently strong women in my opinion. And strong women have always been a power source for me. <laughs> it's just, it's just fascinating. Cause like I, 
admit to only having watched Murder, She Wrote, like when we decided to play Brindlewood Bay, because I it's like a little bit before my time. And I grew up like within lesbian culture, which is which is does has no love for <laughs> the Golden Girls and Murder, She Wrote, or at least it's not like a thing in the way that it is a thing in like gay culture. Um, but I was watching and I was like, wow, how did I how did I not? It's so it's so nice. It's so just like beautiful and and cozy and creepy and fun. And I desperately want um, her whale sweater from episode three. It's, it's on so- Etsy. I'm just telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to treat myself to the whale sweater. <laughs> Percy was throwing pictures of that in Slack the other night. <laughs> it's just like, I need this. <laughs> I need it so bad. So shifting gears a little bit, um, Jason, can you talk a little bit about um, like Brindlewood Bay's inception and what made you want to adapt this like murder she wrote kind of vibe for tabletop? Yeah, so um, for people who don't know, Brindlewood Bay is a tabletop role-playing game about a group of elderly women in a a fictional town in New England called Brindlewood Bay, and they are members of a book club, a mystery book club, and they all share certain things in common. Uh, They all have a deceased partner. They all have uh, kids or, or or. either like biological children or, or something that acts as a kid in their life. And, but this is like their second, like, this is like their, this is like their new phase of their life. So they've moved to Brindlewood Bay and they're sort of like, uh, kind of living like for themselves. Now that's kind of the idea behind Brindlewood Bay. Um, and so they all join, they're all part of this book club, but they're all big fans of mystery books and they have their other like, you know, hobbies and activities that they do in town as well. But they have gotten roped into solving real life murder mysteries and uh, kind of playing on some of the sort of like pop culture jokes of Cabot Cove. Brindlewood Bay has like the highest murder rate per capita in the country, right? Like somebody's always dying in Brindlewood Bay. Um, and so the Murder Mavens, that's the name of the group, the book club, they have to uh, they have to go in there and investigate it. Brindlewood Bay does take a kind of a left turn about uh, halfway through a campaign of Brindlewood Bay where it starts to be about uh, horror. Uh, so it turns out that all of these murders are connected uh, by the machinations of this dark uh, Lovecraftian cult that are trying to raise a monster out of the ocean. And so they eventually have to face that. And so what starts out as a sort of cozy murder mystery uh, thing becomes much darker um, as it goes. Uh, the game is very much like infused with a love of nostalgia, particularly um, American television from the 70s, 80s and 90s. And it and it very much like plays up like the idea of a TV show. So like the game has aspects and elements that are there to remind you that that Brindlewood Bay, you are playing a TV show. Right. So it very much has TV in its DNA. That's what it is. To answer your question, though, I actually did not seek out to write uh, a game that was based off of Murder, She Wrote. I was actually working on another game, The Between, that I mentioned earlier, um, which is about uh, monster hunters in Victorian era London. And I was... Uh, trying to like come up with a, a mystery system, like like a, a way of like doing a mystery game in the way that I would enjoy doing it, and I was having, I wasn't really having trouble, but I didn't want to like, 
I didn't want to like keep rewriting the between over and over again in order to develop my mystery system. And so I decided to write what I considered at the time to be a smaller game that just focused on like murder mysteries, like to just to have a much more focused experience. And so I was kind of like just asking folks like, hey, what would be kind of a cool idea for a small game that that you could do that? And then someone said, you know, I don't think there's a game inspired by Murder, She Wrote. And I was like, oh, I love Murder, She Wrote. That sounds great. And uh, then someone gave me the really great idea of like, they were like, what if it was like Murder, She Wrote, but also Cthulhu? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's amazing. And so that's where it came from, basically. And I'll have, I'll say that, like, when I started writing Brindlewood Bay, I had not actually been like too caught up on murder she wrote in a long time i hadn't watched it in a while and so i kind of at that time had to go back and kind of remind myself of of why i love the show and some things i liked about the show but originally the game was just a sketch for the between and um but then it kind of became its own much bigger thing so yeah um and then joel can you talk about uh the cabot cove ep and what it means for you and what inspired you to make it yeah. So I was doing a solo show at the duplex in New York in 2015. And there was a gap in the set that my director and I identified, and it was an opportunity to write something brand new for the show. Um, and so I wrote the title song Cabot Cove for that moment, you know, which is it, the, the song is a metaphor for this, uh, this relationship of mine that had like just ended and it went over really well. I felt really good performing it. Um, so that became like the impetus to write not a whole album, but just like an EP of like six songs that I felt like that was manageable and it was something that I could make myself. So Jessica Fletcher's character on Murder, She Wrote, wrote, I think, 43 novels in murder in, in the Murder, She Wrote world. And um, and the, the titles are fabulous, like The Corpse Danced at Midnight, Dirge for a Dead Dachshund, Murder in a Minor Key. And I looked at those titles and I was like... These could easily be awesome song titles. So I went to my, you know, my, my, my modest fan base and I pulled them and asked, which ones do you think would be like the best titles for songs as like prompts for songs? And um, the, the top five um, became the titles and became my prompts and became my assignments basically to create this album. So then I started a Kickstarter campaign. I wrote the songs and I was workshopping them on uh, a podcast I was producing at the time called Something New. Then just got a bunch of really cool people on board. You know, Scott Wasserman did the orchestrations. Lisa Howard makes a cameo. Uh, I recorded it at Restoration Sound in Brooklyn with Lorenzo Wolf. Uh, it was mixed and mastered by MP Kuo. And, um, and then at the last minute, I, I was so proud of the album and I was, I was prepared to release it independently, but you know, every once in a while I get brave and I just, I sent the album to Broadway records and I said, I think this should be on your label. And, um, within a day or so they wrote back and they said, we agree, come, come to our office. (laughs) And, um, that's, uh, that's how that happened. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. Nice. And that, um, I think I just saw you posting about it came out like six years ago recently. Yes. Yeah. It came out, uh, I think December 3rd, 2016, which is bananas. Um, Mm -hmm. I, it has gotten me a lot of, you know, it's, it's definitely clout, you know, being on the Broadway records label. And I got to, you know, sign physical CDs at Broadway con a couple of years ago. Um, it's a cool calling card and it's so, it's so self-contained. Um, mm. so it's an easy thing to kind of like, you know, lead with. 
I really love Murder in a Minor Key. Um, that's been stuck <sighs> in my head for a little bit, prepping for this one. Yeah. I didn't realize that she had written 43 books, but I I was in preparation for this episode. I was like, I should really watch the first couple episodes. And like in the first episode, her first book gets published. And then by the third episode, because the first the pilot's a double episode, by the third episode, she has at least three books out and another one that she has <laughs> right. like an advanced reader copy for. Right. Like it goes so quickly, which is crazy. And they never comment on it. They're just like, yeah, she's just a really good writer now and everybody knows her. I mean, how can you look at Angela Lansbury and not be like, yeah, I believe that she's very powerful and successful. <laughs> it's very good. Um. What were the things that each of you felt was really like necessary for your adaptation to feel like Murder, She Wrote? Like, what were the things that you knew for sure you had to do for it to feel uh, in the vein of the show? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, it was very much about like, I think it's actually probably more accurate to describe Brindlewood Bay as almost like a, and I hate this term, but like, it's the most, it's the best term, like a sort of like meta textual, like kind of examination of like television and its inspirations like Murder, She Wrote and Golden Girls and things like that. And so for me, it was really important to kind of capture those feelings of like TV. Right. And so you begin the game uh, every session. You begin with uh, like an opening credits montage of all the characters like enjoying their life in Brindlewood Bay, you know, riding on bikes and doing things like that or whatever they do, you know, doing their hobbies. And um, if they have unlocked the darker aspects of the story, we get to see those dark things playing in the background, you know, um, it has almost like a too many cooks vibe, you know, as it kind of goes. <laughs> and uh, but also in the middle of the game, like the keeper can like cut to commercial and request that players like narrate commercials um, that are like, you know, airing with your episode of Brenda Wood Bay. Um, there was almost a freeze frame ending of every session, but we decided not to do that. I couldn't figure out how to make it work. Right. But uh, I did think about that. So that was at a sort of like meta level. That was really important for Brenda Wood Bay. That was what I wanted to convey. Um, in addition to the game, just all of its like deeply, deeply embedded references to TV, American TV, but kind of getting into like the actual like in fiction world of of the murder mavens, you know, that cozy aspect was really important, like figuring out ways to not just like have cozy elements, you know, there on the surf, but on the surface, but also how to sort of integrate them mechanically. And so, you know, one of the things you can do is like two murder mavens can get together while one of them is doing their what's called their cozy activity. It's like their hobby outside of mystery books. And you have a little scene and those scenes are how you sort of like you bond with the characters, but also it's how you clear like negative conditions, like trait, you know, conditions that you might acquire in game. It's a way of you can stumble on clues for the mysteries while you're doing that. And so you have a lot of incentive to have these like kind of you know, these like intimate moments with just one other character while you're doing your hobbies. Right. So, so yeah, the game like tries to like incorporate those cozy elements, like in a setting way, but also like in a, in a mechanical way as well. Like, and so that you're incentivized to interact with them. Um, so yeah, there's kind of like two things going on there. There's, there's like, you know, there's the meta thing, but then there's also like the sort of the cozy uh, vibe. Um, yeah. We talked about um, when we discussed like the rules and the setup of Brindlewood Bay for our audience, 
um, we talked about the cut to commercial scene, but I hadn't thought of the cozy vignettes at the start as like the title sequence. It is. Yeah. It's the title that's sequence. So yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really I, mean, I, don't, good. I don't know if I like name it. I don't name it the title sequence in the game, but that's what it is. Right. It's, it's yeah. that moment. I even imagine like when I'm, I imagine like when I'm running it or playing it, I imagine the like, I imagine that happening. Right. Like as, as, as the players are narrating um, another podcast, like, um, I, I wish I feel embarrassed. I can't remember which one it was, but another podcast a few years ago who were, they were running the older version of Brenda Wood Bay. And uh, they actually, they composed a song like a, a sort of thank you for being a friend style song uh, for their <laughs> run. And so that was kind of cute, but That's so uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what was necessary for me in adapting murder, she wrote was obviously like the, the, the titles were kind of the, the through line, um, that it is a, it is a musical theater album. They're all like self-contained, but they are very musical theater. And, you know, that's a, a big shout out to, you know, Angela Lansbury and the fans. I feel like, you know, Broadway fans and murder, she wrote fans. Like there's a pretty thick Venn diagram where those two, uh, intersect, uh, depending on your age. Um, I think the the combination of light and dark that I talked about earlier in the episodes that we are dealing with murder, but there there are bouts of levity and um, and so I definitely made sure that I wasn't writing anything too literal, um, like dirge for a dead dachshund. I knew I was, I was like, well, it's not going to be a dirge, that's for sure, because that's a little too on the nose. So it's like this light, breezy, almost Christmassy holiday vibe to it. Um, you know, murder in a minor key. I think even, like the dead must sing was the last song that I wrote. And I was, I was like, what can, what, what could this sound like? And, you know, I had this very originally like more of like a driving panic at the disco kind of vibe, um, inside of me. And I was, I was like, all right, well, what's the opposite of that? And so then like, I just like listened to a bunch of bin folds and, you know, and came up with something a little bit more somber and a little bit more, uh, introspective. And, um, you know, fun fact, uh, murder in a minor key. I, I originally wrote it, uh, for a female's voice in mind and I literally wrote it in a minor. So that's a fun little, nerdy thing um i think also just doing something that no one expected me to do like like angela's character you know i think no one had really been looking at me as a performer for a long time because i had stopped identifying that way um so to come back <laughs> even briefly and saying oh no i wrote and performed this entire album um felt very uh, jb fletcher to me um, and then I think the most necessary for the adaptation was like the theme song. I got the rights to use it, um, which took a lot of doing and it came very close to not being so uh, because Universal, they, they were very suspicious. Like they thought I was secretly writing a Broadway <laughs> musical um, of Murder, She Wrote, and I had to keep clarifying. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is an 11 second instrumental in the title song. And they're like, and you promise you're not writing a musical. That's going to be on Broadway. And I'm, and I've never had to adamantly tell someone, no, I'm not writing this for Broadway um, in my life. And, um, and once again, like shout out to Robbie Rizal and Van Dean at Broadway records, because once they got involved, then I think my uh, request was taken a little bit more seriously. Um, but yeah, I'm very proud to say that that theme song uh, is a part of the album. It's great. Um, and Jason, I don't know if you got to experience this, but I know that Joel has, um, and I have to ask, what was it like going to the Murder, She Wrote experience at Universal in the 90s? 
It was amazing. It was amazing. I was 10 years old and um, I was obviously the only one in my family that wanted to go on this quote unquote ride. Uh, But my whole family did my mom, my dad, my little sister. And it was basically like a studio lot tour, all completely indoors. And they took you through how they created an episode, you know, from writing it to film, you know, pre-production, post-production. It was, I thought, super cool because I loved all that behind the scenes stuff. Um, But the piece I remember the most was in in post-production. They talked about, you know, sometimes when we record um, the scenes, you know, the sound gets muffled and we have to go back into the studio to like dub over it. And I was like, what? This is amazing. And and they said, especially when it comes to like kissing, they're like, you know, like you can't really hear kissing. And so they talked about, you know, having to go into the booth and like kiss your hand or like to make that kissing sound. And like someone from the audience was picked to go into the booth to like record the kissing in this ride. And I was so jealous. It wasn't me. Um, I was 10 granted, um, but <laughs> I just, I'll never forget that, that moment or that ride. And uh, I feel very proud that, uh, that I got to experience that. That's wild. <laughs> I love that so much. There is like a bootleg of almost the whole experience. If you want to YouTube, no. it. it's wild. <laughs> um, but you can see them like they're picking what shots they're going to use in one area. They're doing Foley in another area. They're like redubbing audio in certain areas. It's very cool and very like, oh, this is how TV is made. Um, in a did way, did I that, remember? Did I remember the kiss moment? Oh correctly? yeah, there's is a that... kiss moment. That's a thing. I I oh saw this lady having to kiss her hand, um, <laughs> and it was very funny. But it's Amazing. super cool if you're interested listeners you can like look this up it's wild that this was something that they were like this will be a ride that people will want to go on as much as a roller coaster but it seems very cool from like a a behind the scenes standpoint Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean i feel like i don't know as a person who does theater people who do not do theater and i assume the same is true for people who do not work in television like the process of like how things come to be is very exciting um so like it it makes sense to me Although that is always funny when people are like, oh, like this is what it's like backstage in the theater. And it's just a bunch of like sweaty nerds like running around (laughs) with (laughs) like flashlights and, and, you know, costumes that they have to put away. Um, That was unnecessarily shady, but we're going to we're going to keep going. Um, (laughs) uh, Jason and Joel, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. The last thing that we wanted to ask about is uh, where can people find you on the Internet? Should you wish to be found? And is there anything upcoming that you would like to plug, uh, starting with Jason? Uh, Yeah. So I would recommend just going to uh, our website, which is uh, the website for The Gauntlet, uh, which is our organization that. Uh, publishes and does podcasts and and different things. Uh, That's gauntlet-rpg.com. I am also on Twitter um, at Jason Cordova six, and then the gauntlets on Twitter as well at gauntlet RPG. As for things that we have coming up uh, in 2023, we have three brand new games coming out, actually four, but the fourth is pretty far down the line. The three that are coming most soon. Um, They all use the mystery system of Brindlewood Bay, but in different ways. Uh, The first is Arkham Herald, which is a much more traditional sort of like Cthulhu Lovecraftian horror game. But it's about newspaper reporters in the 1970s. So it has like uh, like Parallax View vibes. It's got um, it's inspired by things like Seven and Zodiac and stuff like that. Um, We have 
the uh, my, my game, uh, my next my next game coming out is called Public Access. It is about a creepy public access TV station in New Mexico and the mysteries in and around the town where this uh, TV station was. And then uh, we are also going to be making um, the. Uh, official role-playing game of a horror podcast called The Silt Versus. I don't know if anyone knows The Silt Versus, but The Silt Versus, S-I-L-T, is um, a really fabulous uh, horror podcast about, it's, it's about a world where like, it's a world like suffused with gods. It's like a modern day world, but but everyone has a god. Like you're, you have a, a god in your backyard. You have a god, you know, of the river. You have a god of the, you know, there's there's a the cereal box. You know, it, it, the, the the cartoon character in the cereal box is a god, right? Like, and um and in the game you play like characters who have to like go and deal with the like lost and abandoned gods that still want sacrifice and worship and so you have to kind of go like cope with them and how they're tormenting the communities that they're they're lost in so uh yeah but that's uh that podcast is really terrific i recommend it it's called the silt versus um good stuff but yeah that's what we have coming up awesome i'm really looking forward to public access i've been reading about that uh you can find me on my website which is joelbnew.com i'm also on instagram and as far as and, and on that website, you can see all my different projects. You can listen to Cabot Cove. Uh, you can Cabot Cove is streaming on Spotify, Apple Music, basically anywhere where you listen to music. Um, you could, you, you know, I have seen it in a Barnes and Noble. So, you know, you could actually see it out there in the wild, which is pretty cool. And um, and a bunch of my other projects, um, you can like listen to demos and all that good stuff. Uh, as far as upcoming, I'm working on a new musical comedy called Red Hat Fight Club. And it's about it's a made up origin story of the Red Hat Society, where they are secretly a bunch of older women who get together and beat each other up. <laughs> and um, that is having its world premiere concert at the Green Room 42 in New York on Mother's Day 2023. So that is Sunday, May 14th at 7 p.m. Um, you can get your in-person tickets or your live stream tickets now. You know, I've written I've written Act One. And I'm writing at two uh, in like the next month or so, and then giving myself a couple of weeks or months to, you know, clean it up. And um, yeah, so that's going to be that's going to be wild. That's the that's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's so good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Folks out there listening, you can join us next week for the start of our third Brindlewood Bay mystery amicable autumnal abattoir and we'll see you then bye dungeons and drama nerds is produced by top brian Backus, percival hornack and nicholas orvis and is mixed and edited by anthony sertelti if you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeons and drama nerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios in the link tree in our show notes. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.